For more information on Ancient Dragon Zen Gate, please visit our website at www.ancientdragon.org. Our teachings are offered to the community through the generosity of our supporters. To make a donation online, please visit our website. The unsurpassed, profound, and wondrous Dharma is rarely met with even in a hundred thousand million kalpas. Now I can see and hear it, accept and maintain it. May I unfold the meaning of the Tathagata's truth. Good morning, everyone. Can you hear me? Okay, so uh, this morning I'm going to talk about our Bodhisattva precepts, uh, three different aspects of them. Uh, Dale, can you hear me? Uh, Anyway. Um, But before that, a couple different things I wanted to talk about before I start uh, the Dharma talk. First of all, we had a little bit of excitement this morning because our website was down, uh, but you all managed to get here anyway. So I wanted to thank uh, the people who helped with that, David Ray, Wade, and Mike, who are not here, Hogetsu, thank you, Jason, Douglas. Anyway, well, here we are. Um, uh, The other thing I wanted to talk about before I start the Dharma talk is uh, Sojin Mel Weitzman Roshi, um, who is um, transitioning. Uh, He's 91 years old uh, and is in his last stages. um, um, Not expect, he's in uh, hospice care, not expected to um, make it till next year. so uh, I wanted to say a little bit about him. Um, we will do a well-being uh, service and dedication for him and others uh, at the end of this uh, morning program. But uh, Mel uh, is a very important person in our Suzuki Roshi lineage. Um, he founded the uh, Berkeley Zen Center in 1967. He was a, a disciple of Suzuki Roshi, ordained by Suzuki Roshi. And uh, uh, many, many of the San Francisco Zen Center leaders came to uh, Zen at at the Berkeley Zen Center and through Mel. Um, Paul, I think you're one of them. Um, uh, He uh, ordained and transmitted many people, uh, people, important people in our lineage. I think he has 20 um, transmitted disciples, more or less, probably more, uh, including people like Norman Fisher and Zen K. Blanche Hartman, which have many more themselves. So um, Mel was a very important person uh, in our lineage. Um, and uh, kind of a, a, a humble person, uh, uh, not, uh, you know, just a very steady person and kept the Berkeley Zen Center going 
this year. He had his stepping down ceremony as abbot of Berkeley Zen Center just last month. Um, my old friend Alan Sanoki will uh, become the new abbot of Berkeley Zen Center at the end of January. Um, uh, Zengyu, uh, I don't know if you would like to say a little bit about Mel, uh, just a little bit before the talk. I'm probably not the best person to talk about Mel because we, we in our in our youth in our youth we saw things a little differently as, as far as East West went. Um, he was more he was one of the leading people that wanted to make Buddhism Zen American, and I was sort of steeped in the Japanese tradition. So uh, there was there was always sort of a little. A little bit of a difference there, but he was his, his voice was very powerful, and it, and it was very important for many people. And I would say the best, one of the best ex- Buddhist experiences I ever had was taking care of the Berkeley Zen Center, taking care of his Zen, his group for uh, nine months while he was at Atasahara being Shuso. Um, it was it was it was a wonderful a wonderful group, and a wonderful setting, and a very special place and. And, and it was due to due to him. He was he was kind of a beatnik and an artist when he started. Um, he was not he was not a scholar. He was not a not an athlete. He was not he was more of a he was more of a creative soul, and a, and and um, very much very much into uh, people and the creative process. He was. Very as as Ty gets says, he was very steady, and um, Zen Center is very, very, very fortunate to have had him in our in the in its in its fold. Thank you, thank you, Paul. So um, anyway, uh, uh, Surgeon Mel Roshi is still with us, but not for very long. So I just wanted to acknowledge that, uh, and. Uh, Part of what I want to talk about today in terms of the precepts is what uh, Zengi was just referring to, the East-West uh, divide. So I'm going to talk about three aspects of uh, the, that come up around the precepts, uh, our Bodhisattva precepts. Um, first of all, our connection to, Zen's connection to the Bodhisattva tradition through the precepts. Uh, second, uh, the uh, kind of uh, we might say the ultimate aspect, the universal aspect of the precepts, um, the initiation or confirmation aspect of the precepts, which is really what's important in Japanese Soto Zen. And then I want to talk about the precepts as ethical guidelines, which is more important actually in the Western uh, uh, approach to the precepts. So, uh, to start off, uh, we have uh, in our tradition, in the Soto tradition, 16 Bodhisattva precepts, which we follow. Uh, David Ray, could you uh, screen share those, please? So I'll just uh, read through them for you all. Uh, some of you know these very well. Some of you who are newer may not. But th- th- our, these 16 precepts are from Ehe Dogen Zenji, who lived, is, is the uh, considered the founder of Soto Zen, lived in the 13th century, 1200 to 1253. 
these all of these go back further, but he put together this particular combination of the precepts, and these are the precepts that we uh, still say in our precept ceremony here at Ancient Dragon Zen Gate. I take refuge in Buddha, I take refuge in Dharma, I take refuge in Sangha, the three refuges, very traditional. Then there's three pure precepts. I vow to embrace and sustain right conduct, and my teacher, Tenshin Reb Anderson Roshi, sometimes translates this as, I vow to embrace and sustain rites, or rituals, and conduct. Then I vow to embrace and sustain all good. And third, I vow to embrace and sustain all beings. Very important that this is a practice of inclusion of all beings, not even just human beings. But then the ten grave precepts, and I'll be talking about these later. Um, and um, well, I'll say I'll say much more later. But these are not; they sound like the Ten Commandments, but they're not. Uh, so the way we say them, and, and there are various different renditions now in modern Soto Zen. But a disciple of Buddha does not kill. A disciple of Buddha does not take what is not given. A disciple of Buddha does not misuse sexuality. A disciple of Buddha does not lie. A disciple of Buddha does not intoxicate mind or body of self or others. A disciple of Buddha does not speak of the faults of others. A disciple of Buddha does not praise self at the expense of others. A disciple of Buddha is not possessive of anything. A disciple of Buddha does not harbor ill will. A disciple of Buddha does not disparage the three treasures, which are Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha. So again, I'll come back to these ten later in the talk. So David, you can uh, uh, take away the screen share. We'll 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 bring it back later. Uh, So I want to talk about these um, uh, in a few different ways. First of all, just a little bit on the history of this. Um, All these precepts are derived from the tradition of precepts going back to India and the Vinaya. And uh, uh, there was in in, uh, mainland Asia monastic precepts, which are um, a much larger number and much uh, stricter in some ways. But our precepts uh, owe a lot to uh, Tendai Buddhism, which is a school of Japanese uh, precepts, Japanese Buddhism that predates Zen. Uh, Tendai comes from the Chinese Chiantai school, but was founded by Saicho in, around in the 800s in Japan. And uh, Saicho wanted to especially embrace uh, uh, Bodhisattva precepts. So that's what we are doing, these Bodhisattva precepts. And um, so all of these of our our 16 come from the Tendai in some ways. And our our ceremony of uh, Bodhisattva, uh, our our, our ceremony, our Jukai lay ordination ceremony and priest ordination ceremony owe a lot to the Tendai ceremony. And Dogen, uh, who founded Soto Zen, initially was a Tendai monk. Uh, Tendai was centered on Mount Hie, uh, the mountain at the northeastern side of Kyoto, near where I lived when I lived in Kyoto for a couple of years. And um, 
So part of part of this is just to uh, uh, reaffirm that Zen is very much connected to the whole Mahayana Bodhisattva tradition in Japan and in Asia. Uh, Dogen was a Tendai monk before he went to China, and or, well, actually, he started uh, practicing Zen in Japan before that in the Rinzai Monastery, uh, but uh, most of his uh, of Dogen's disciples had been his important disciples, especially had been Tendai monks. So uh, sometimes I think in America there's some idea of Zen as something separate from Buddhism. Um, maybe people who've been at Ancient Dragon a while don't think this way, but Dogen himself said that he was not teaching Zen. And he was certainly not teaching Soto Zen, although the tradition that comes from him that we follow is known as Soto Zen. But um, he, Dogen said what he was teaching was just Buddhism. So uh, I, I wanted to start by just expressing how, uh, for uh, how our, our practice, our you know we could call it Soto Zen practice, this practice from Suzuki Roshi lineage, is uh, Bodhisattva Mahayana Buddhism, and this is reflected in these these precepts and, this, and the precept ceremony that we do, and this is also. Uh, very much true for me personally. Uh, when I was 20 years old, I, um, through causes and conditions, had the opportunity to spend three months traveling around to uh, Buddhist temples, not just Zen temples, in Kyoto and Nara. And I, you know, knew a little bit about Buddhism before that. You know, I'd read uh, Gary Snyder uh, a little bit, and I'd read Zen Flesh, Zen Bones, the, maybe the only really good Zen book available then. Uh, but I was really uh, uh, influenced, transformed by seeing all these Buddhist temples uh, and statues of Buddhas and Bodhisattvas and uh, also Zen rock gardens. But um, that was a very powerful experience for me. I didn't know that I could have anything to do with it. Although actually the year before, I had heard something about some monastery, some Zen monastery east of Big Sur. And I actually, the year before was the first time I was ever in California. And I was driving down around Big Sur and looked for a road to go uh, east to some of this uh, mythical Zen monastery. I didn't find it. It was many years later that I went to, that I got to Tassajara. But uh, anyway, those three months were very important. And to me, it was about bodhisattvas and Buddhas and these Buddhist figures. So uh, four years after that, I ended up coming back to the States and going back to college. And four years later, I met my first uh, teacher, my uh, Sotos, uh, Japanese Soto Zen priest in New York City. So uh, for me personally also, uh, this Zen practice is not separate from the bodhisattva tradition in uh, in Asia and Japan and, and going back to China. So um, that's the first point I wanted to make, that these precepts connect us to this long uh, Bodhisattva tradition in Japan and China and, and Korea and, and going back to India. Uh, so um, 
The second thing I want to talk about is, uh, and we will have time for discussion, but about the ceremony itself. So we have a, it's called a Jukai ceremony. Uh, Jukai means to, uh, to accept the precepts, to receive and accept the precepts, as we call it also lay ordination. But actually it's the same precepts for priest ordination. And this is a ceremony that we do that involves uh, studying the precepts with, with me or now with other teachers at Ancient Dragons and Game. Um, and uh, it also includes sewing a Roksu, one of these, uh, with our sewing teacher, Hogetsu, um, who uh, is trained in, in, uh, through Blanche um, in uh, how this practice of, of sewing uh, a Roksu, which is a symbolic priest robe. Um, it's all, we also... Do our own, sew our own cases, the, the, the priest robes, the larger priest robes. Um, and there's a study of the uh, precepts that's involved. But, it, but also that ceremony involves a kind of initiation into a particular lineage. There's a lineage paper that connects the person receiving it, doing that ceremony with the person giving the ceremony, myself or uh, Yozan, oration, um, uh, and then going back through this lineage all the way back to Shakyamuni and then coming around back up to Shakyamuni. So it's a, it's an initiation ceremony. And it's a confirmation ceremony of Buddha nature. And actually in Japan now, and I think pretty much going back to Dogen's time, it was more, it was understood more in terms of that, than in terms of uh, a ceremony to uh, study ethical guidelines. So, uh, in some ways, this is just about the first of those 16 precepts. I take refuge in Buddha. In some ways, all of those precepts are just uh, expressions of that first precept. Taking refuge in Buddha. This is something that, you know, as uh, numbers of the people here have done that ceremony as lay people or as priests, taking refuge in Buddha, returning to Buddha, taking, returning home to Buddha. But this is also our practice, our zazen practice. So whether or not you do that uh, formal ceremony of initiation, those precepts are part of our zazen. Our zazen practice is to just sit like Buddha to sit upright, to be present in, in this body, your body, to find what is, what is Buddha, what is uprightness, what is clarity and awareness for each one of us. So each one of us expresses Buddha in our own way. And Zazen is our practice that and the way we do Zazen was the way that Dogen emphasized it when he brought it back from China, to just sit upright, to inhale and exhale, to be present and aware with whatever is happening, to uh, find and deepen that awareness in our sitting, but then 
how do we express that in our life? And that's where these precepts come in. There are guidelines to that. But really, uh, just to the confirmation of this Buddha nature, this Buddha quality in your body mind, on your seat. So uh, these precepts are uh, unfold as expressions of taking refuge in Buddha. And then, of course, taking refuge in Buddha is to take refuge in Dharma, the teaching, the reality, the truth of our life. And in Sangha, because this happens in community, together with all the people in our life. So these precepts, um, you know, and as I say, in, in Japan, anyway, um, the emphasis was more just this initiation, this confirmation. They did this ceremony, they took these 16 precepts, but uh, it wasn't so much as we think about it as ethical guidelines. But just to um, really settle into Buddha. However, for us in the West, and, and Paul was talking about this, this uh, difference between uh, the way things are understood in Japan and the way things are understood in the West, uh, you know, it's been now uh, 60 years since Suzuki Roshi came from Japan to California. Next year, it'll be 50 years since Suzuki Roshi passed away. So uh, we have been evolving in some ways, for better or worse, <laughs> um, this American Western Soto Zen tradition. And we still have a lot to learn, I would say, from the old Asian Mahayana Bodhisattva tradition. But also, in some ways, I think it's appropriate that we have our own way of practicing this. So Zen in the West has um, integrated with many aspects of our Western culture, certainly Western psychology, and psychological insight and awareness. Uh, Western, um, well, Western tr spiritual traditions, Western um, sense of social engagement, very different from uh, the way people saw society in the feudal society uh, that was the background of Asian Buddhism. So uh, we need to look at how that, how that is for us here. And one way that this is different is in terms of the precepts. So I think for, uh, for all of us as Westerners, when we uh, take lay ordination, priest ordination, we tend to emphasize more than, more than the confirmation aspect, uh, more than the initiation aspect, we emphasize the ethical guidelines in these 10 precepts. And I think, it's, I think it would be good for us to, uh, to reaffirm the initiation aspect, the confirmation aspect, the refuge in Buddha aspect, 
but also we do have these ethical guidelines. Um, so I think it's not inappropriate that we pay attention to them. But I think it's easy for us to misunderstand them. And this is partly because of our Western context and Western view of morality. So I want to kind of bring this up and, and then have some discussion. So, uh, David Ray, would you please put the, the uh, precepts up again? And I want to look at these in terms of these 10 grave precepts. Each one of these, again, they may sound like the Ten Commandments, but uh, in Buddhism and, and in East Asian culture, uh, ethics and morality are seen very differently than, than in our context. So even if we're not, uh, so I don't know if you can, David, if you can get rid of that. There we go. Um, uh, we tend to think of, of in the West, uh, because of the Abrahamic Judeo-Christian tradition, we tend to think of ethics and morality in terms of absolutes, moral absolutes. Don't kill is a moral absolute. Don't steal. Uh, uh, so we uh, have, we think in terms of good and bad and right and wrong. Uh, so this is this is our, our our cultural context, whether or not we ever. Um, we uh, practiced Judeo-Christian religions as uh, before we came to Buddhism. That's our culture. However, the I would suggest that the that East Asian culture has a different ethical base, and I, I could call it Confucian ethics. Um, it's not it's not a, you know officially Confucianism. But it's the background of East Asian culture, of all of East Asian culture, Chinese and Japanese. And it's more uh, situational than absolute. So I want to I uh, give examples and talk about this uh, because it gives us a different sense of what ethical guidelines are about. And as much as uh, for us as Westerners now, we look at the precepts more in terms of ethical guidelines. Um, they're not they're not rules. They're not thou shalt not. They're more koans. They're guidelines. They're way, they're reminders. So when one does the jukai ceremony, it doesn't mean that one is has uh, perfected all these things <laughs> at all. It, these are. These are uh, reminders that come up when we feel like we're in, you know, having some issue with these. With these, so when people uh, do this formal ceremony with me, I ask them to look at one or two or three of these and and study it during the week and during during their everyday uh, experience and see how it comes up. So these are ways of just reminding us how we express Buddha in our everyday activity. And this is very important, maybe particularly in our Soto Zen tradition. The point isn't to reach some ultimate state of perfection, but to get some 
sense through extended practice of showing up for zazen and some sense of something deeper, some ultimate, some universal reality. But then how do we bring it into our everyday activity? What do we do when we get up from our zazen, when we go out from uh, our sangha experience and live in, in our life, in our everyday activity in the world? And these are reminders of how to express refuge in Buddha in our life. And again, it's not, they're not absolutes, they're situational. And actually in the Rinzai Koan system, these precepts are one of the, one of the later stages of the koans. But let me give you, give you an example. A disciple of Buddha does not intoxicate mind or body of self or others. So some translations say, just say, a disciple of Buddha does not sell wine. <laughs> that would be a kind of literalist, fundamentalist um, uh, interpretation of this. But this, uh, we know this is not, um, uh, that intoxicants are not just alcohol or drugs. Many things can intoxicate us. The internet can intoxicate us. Politics can intoxicate us. Even Zazen can intoxicate us if we get too attached to it. That, that's not, it's hard for that to happen in a, in a non-residential lay context. But if you're up in the mountains in the monastery, maybe that could happen. But uh, I want to talk about the situationality of it. But actually, first, before I, before I talk about that, we have to understand these as uh, not just a disciple of Buddha does not kill, but also a disciple of Buddha helps others not to kill. And there's also a positive aspect of each of them. So a disciple of Buddha does not kill means a disciple of Buddha supports life. Disciple of Buddha does not take what is not given also means a disciple of Buddha accepts what is given, receives what is given. Disciple of Buddha does not misuse sexuality. Uh, We could see that as a disciple of Buddha uses sexuality respectfully and wholesomely. A disciple of Buddha does not lie also means a disciple of Buddha speaks truth, whatever that means. Now, these are, as I said, these are all koans. These are challenges to how we live in the world. So coming back to a disciple of Buddha does not intoxicate mind or body of self or others, that's a good one for seeing how uh, these situational ethics work. I have a good friend who I started um, Zen practice with back in New York a long time ago, uh, who is an alcoholic. And he hasn't touched a drop of alcohol in, I don't know, 40 or 50 years. But he still considers himself an alcoholic and goes to AA meetings. For some people, this, this precept means not to, not to drink any alcohol. Period. For example, um, for other people, having a glass of wine socially might be just fine. So it's not an absolute. It's not a moral absolute. It's a question of what is intoxicating and what what fosters awareness. So the opposite of this precept would be a disciple of Buddha supports awareness of mind or body, of self and others. 
how do we encourage awareness rather than uh, addiction or intoxication? So at Ancient Dragons Zen Gate, still we have a Tuesday evening uh, recovery group to look at these things. Uh, so, uh, I'm t- so to say that ethics is situational is again, it's not one rule fits all. So I, I could talk more about each of these 10. Uh, maybe I'll mention a couple of others. A disciple of Buddha does not speak of the faults of others. That's a tricky one. I think, so as I understand it now, and, and each of these precepts is something that we grow with, that we try and work with, that, that you know we might have different understandings of, but it doesn't mean that we can't talk about situations of harm in our life or in the society or world around us, but how do we do it without name-calling, without speaking of others' particular you know, fault-finding? This is very challenging. How do we speak of situations of harm without you know, calling, some peop- calling some people whatever bad names, but actually talking about how to if we see somebody in our life causing harm, how do we think about how to help them to call, to be helpful, for example? So there's a subtlety to each of these ten. Uh, so let me the one of the so uh, one of the precepts that many people look at is a disciple of Buddha does not harbor ill will. This is the precept about anger. Some translations of this, some more literal translations, say, disciple of Buddha does not get angry. Well, we are electromagnetic creatures. We have attractions and aversions. Uh, I like the disciple of Buddha does not harbor ill will because it means we don't hold on to anger. We don't um, turn anger into grudge or resentment. We don't turn anger into hatred. How do we, all of these precepts have that quality. And whether or not you take the formal ceremony of uh, lay ordination or taking refuge, these are guidelines that you can use, all of us. How do you use anger constructively? So there's a, one co- traditional commentary about this precept that says, if you, don't get ang- get ang- if you don't have anger when it's appropriate, that's a violation of this precept. But it's not somebody. It's not ang- It's not angry because of somebody else. It's your anger. How do you use that energy constructively to see clearly what's happening, to resolve, to uh, respond appropriately, to be helpful in the situation that allows you to feel your anger, rather than turning it into resentment and grudge against some so-called other person. So each of these precepts is uh, like that. Each of these precepts is a uh, something to look at, to look at situationally, to look at in terms of positive and negative, in terms of yourself and others, to help, to try and help to express this refuge in Buddha in your life. So uh, I think in the West we look at these more. Uh, as ethical guidelines in this way, but I think we can 
uh, I think if we're going to look at them as ethical guidelines, we need to see them as skillful means, not as some moral absolute that if you don't follow this precept, you're evil or bad or wrong. So this is a kind of subtlety that, that if we're going to take these on as ethical guidelines, we need to get again return to. Uh, so David, maybe you can take the screen share away. Uh, how do we um, see these precepts in the context of initiation and confirmation into the lineage of just expressing Buddha and our Sazen practice of finding, deepening our experience of Buddha as we sit over time and deepen our awareness of something deeper. So, um, just to, to say again, there's this, these precepts go back to our, our Buddhist tradition. And Zen is not tr- separate from the whole Mahayana Bodhisattva tradition. And I, people who've been around ancient dragon a while understand this, and we chant the um, the uh, four bodhisattva vows at the end of our events, and um, also, but but also, I want to emphasize that it's not just about uh, learning some ethical guidelines. It's also about some deep connection to returning home to Buddha some connection to the the to Buddha's lineage, to Buddha's uh, practice, to our own uprightness and Buddha's exp- and expression of Buddha. And then the if it, uh, in the way that uh, I think more in the West than uh, in Asia, we look at these ethical guidelines, but uh, to look at them not in terms of some absolute right or wrong, but in terms of how can we look at them subtly as ethical guidelines, as situational, uh, as skillful means that we have to apply in a subtle way in a particular situation. So um, I'm interested in your responses, your comments, your questions. Uh, Please feel free. For those of you who we can't see David Ray, maybe you can help me call on people you can go to the participants link on the bottom and raise your hand. There's a raise hand link at the bottom. So uh, uh, please, uh, I welcome your comments and responses. Thank you. Again, I have a question. David. Thank you for that talk. My question is about initiation, um, what, that, what that might mean in the Buddhist tradition. And the reason that I ask is that coming from Western monotheistic traditions, I mean, I, I, I know some really you know, sort of absolutist versions of how initiation works, like the sacrament of baptism, which is supposed to change your soul. But, but what... What, 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 what does it mean that, that taking the precepts is a kind of initiation? Is it initiation into something, into a membership? Or? 
Well, it's specifically into a lineage. So uh, if you do that here at Ancient Dragon Zen Gate or in any of Suki Roshi lineage, then you're um, then you're initiated into a particular lineage, uh, whether it's uh, a lineage that connects to Suzuki Roshi. So there's a lineage paper that Kichinyaku in Japanese, which has names of a bunch of people in India, a bunch of people in China, a bunch of people in Japan, now people in America. And then your name will be at the bottom, your new name. So that so part of that ceremony is that you can get a new Dharma name. So Nyozan means suchness mountain. That's a name I gave him. And my name, Taigen Shizen, is a name that I was given by my teacher, Tenshin Rabandishan. So you get a new name as well as a this Roksu that you sew yourself with Hogetsu's guidance. Uh, and you also get this lineage paper that um, connects you literally to this lineage of people who kept alive this tradition in India, China, and Japan. And then at the bottom, uh, below your name, there's a line that goes back up to the top and back up to Shakyamuni because it's a circle. It's alive. It's, this is a, it's an initiation into how to keep alive this tradition, this particular tradition of keeping alive the Buddha's teaching and practice. And, um, you know, it's not that, that it's one lineage is, you know, I mean, the, uh, part, of, part of what I like about ancient dragon Zen gate, uh, so this many times before is that people here have practiced in other lineages and other traditions. And, and, uh, and that's great. You know, I think we have a breadth of, I think one of the, one of the gifts of uh, American Zen is that there's a range of, of traditions where sort of eclectic. So you, when you do this initiation, you're initiated into one lineage, but we also are informed by, uh, as I was saying, Western psychology, Western spirituality, and so forth. So having uh, people here who have practiced in other lineages or in other traditions is is kind of a gift. It makes us, it gives us some kind of maturity. There's also people who've just started here at Ancient Dragon Zen Gate. So there's a range, and that's, uh, and I think that's a good thing. It's not, it's not, um, it's not, you know, about my my it's not about having you know being sectarian in the sense of my lineage is better than your lineage you know so i'm not in 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 sojin mel's lineage i'm in uh his drama brother tension tension rev anderson's lineage but i have so many good so many good friends who are from uh, uh mel's lineage we're you know we're we're cousins we're all related and that's part of it uh how are we all related in Buddha's family? So once, uh, so one of the things that the sutras talk about is sons and daughters of good family. It means anybody who's a, Buddha, a follower of Buddha. But this, uh, the initiation is an initiation into that family. So thank you for your question. I see Dylan's hand is up. Dylan. Good morning, Tigan. Good morning, everybody. Um, I, I was listening to, uh, the Dharma talk from last week on anti-racism 
uh, and uh, I heard just in my own voice, like just this, um, this really deep uh, existential anger, um, as well as anger at myself, which I'll, I'll keep, you know, I've been studying and I'll keep studying. Um, so I'm just interested talking on your thoughts on, on both of those sides, I guess, uh, on the, on the existential anger side of it, I think there's, I feel this anger about like, um, just the persistence and scale of suffering, you know, like, like how, how to be calm or, um, uh, uh, settled about that, you know, um, and, uh, and then, I mean, I don't know how much of the, on the personal side, I think that's just more, you know, more of the courage for me to be honest with myself and learn how to be compassionate with myself. Um, but just your thoughts on either of those sides of it, or maybe they're the same thing. I don't know, or different sides of the same thing. Well, the precept says to not harbor ill will. So um, with all of these precepts, they come alive and you realize that when you see, oh, I'm, I'm holding on to some ill will or, um, you know, whatever, I'm, I'm uh, not being completely truthful. Well, what is that about? Or um, I am speaking the faults of others or I am um, attaching to self, you know, and, so uh, the, the precept comes up when we, when we feel like we have some problem with that. So um, maybe, it's, maybe uh, there are situations. So, so the, the first noble truth is that there is suffering. And it's a noble truth because we can face it. So when you see suffering, in some ways being angry about it may be Maybe your way of realizing it, but it's a little bit extra. I mean, maybe you need to go through that. Maybe it's one of the stages of grief or something. But to feel the sadness about the suffering of people around us, and there's plenty of that this year in so many ways, may be necessary. But then how do you help? So, Dylan, you have helped by... Uh, in terms of the suffering of racism by having the Friday morning group that allows people to, allows us to discuss this and look at it and see it in ourselves and in each other and in the world. But, you know, labeling some people as racist and some people as anti-racist and some people as, you know, different classifications, that's not so helpful. I think it's what do we actually do to help the suffering that's, that's, that happens as a result of this, and to see it in, the, in, in terms of causes and conditions and karma and the, the, the legacy of our country uh, in some ways being founded economically on slavery and, and the whole history of that, and uh, we're still living with that. So to look at that without um, you know, getting excited with harboring some, some ill will well, it may be difficult. Maybe you need to look at your at the pattern of how you hold on to that anger. But it's a good thing that you're seeing that. And then how do you actually 
be helpful rather than just holding on to these intense feelings. It's difficult, and I, I and and that's just my this, that's just my off the cuff response. I don't. It's it's it takes. It, this is work. This is the work of looking at ourselves. So Dogen says to study the ways to study the self. So we have to look at ourselves when these things come up. And then what do we do? And there's not, uh, there's not one right answer. That's what I mean by saying it's not a moral absolute. It's, it, 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 it's shifting the situation. How, how racism gets expressed, for example, in, in Chicago and in our society shifts and in our own hearts. And we have to look at that. So, um, so just to t- just to take one position of raging at whomever is is uh, actually to to run away from actually facing the suffering. It's a noble truth because we can just be upright and face it, and not just divert to uh, ill will. But this is a challenge for for our whole culture now. So, uh, thank you for raising that. Uh, Shingyu has her hand up. Uh, hi, Taigen. Thank you for your talk, and also thank you for Dylan's question and Taigen's answer. It reminds me of. Um, the instruction of turning turning the dharma eye inward, and uh, I really appreciate that. And I have never taken the Jukai ceremony, so I am curious about uh, why you chose to take uh, the Jukai ceremony. And is it in? Uh, I know that, like in terms of like ceremony or formality, it will be perhaps like in studying session. But like practically speaking, are you sort of taking that precept, quote unquote, every day? Uh, and like, is it sort of a continual process? Yeah, thank you for your question. Yeah, it's a continual process. It's just once you, whether or not you do the formal ceremony, one can remember taking refuge in Buddha and Dharma and Sangha. Uh, and you can recite those uh, every day, and you can recite the 16 every day. Uh, but it's, uh, it's, they're particularly relevant when they come up, when you see some situation where you have some question about your own conduct, as Dylan just expressed. So, um, and I just, uh, I did Jukai first, my first year of practicing with my uh, Japanese Soto priest teacher in New York. And then I did it again with my teacher, Tenshin Anderson Roshi. And uh, so there's a number of people here who've done that ceremony here who had done it previously with other, in other places. And that's okay. Um, But it's not necessary to do that ceremony, but you're, you know, but we have, it is available. Actually, there's a, a question now in terms of the practicalities of sewing and when we can uh, gather and do the ceremony and how to do whether or not we can do it on Zoom. And we're all, all announced later we're going to have an all day sitting in in uh, in January uh, on Zoom and not and uh, in person. And uh, 
that's very exciting. And we have this uh, Zoom situation, which is uh, something we're going to be experimenting with this year <laughs> and evolving with. And uh, so, uh, but anyway, uh, I'm not sure when we're going to be able to actually do that ceremony formally uh, now, but uh, there are people who are preparing for it, but you don't have to do that ceremony. It's not that this, that it's required, but for me, it was something I wanted to do when I, uh, uh, at the end of the first year of my, of my uh, practice. Um, so, um, Again, uh, you can um, you can get copies of those sixteen precepts if you want from me, and and, and just just remember them uh, and see how you can use them in practice. Um, so uh, I don't know if that if you have a follow up question. Uh, y- yes, I would be curious about like did something go through your mind like. Was there any particular reason that you um, feel compelled or is it just a coming of situation that you decided to take this Jukai ceremony? And uh, I don't know if I'm thinking in the right direction. <laughs> and you also maybe, what is the effect of the Jukai ceremony on your practice? Well, it's an encouragement, you know. I mean, the... The people who wear these these uh, rock suits or wear the you know, cases, it's not that necessarily that their practice is better than somebody else's. It's just, in some ways, it's a support. It's an encouragement. Uh, I, I think my wanting to do it had something to do with what I saw when I was going around to Buddhist temples for three months, you know, four years before I started practice. So uh, anyway, just something I wanted to connect with. I, I, you know, it's not, I, I think it's different for different people, people who want to do this. It's, again, it's not necessary to do it. But if you want to, we, it's something that we offer here and, uh, and uh, you know, hopefully pe- the pandemic will be over at some point in the coming year and we'll be able to do that ceremony. Uh, Yozan has his hand up and then Fushin. So Yozan? Can't hear you, Nyusan. You need to unmute. Can't hear you. Okay, sorry. Having trouble with my little teeny phone icon. Um, I can hear you now. Good. Uh, um, Just uh, two comments. Uh, The first of which is that um, over the years, I have come to think of the grave precepts as themselves a kind of refuge, um, um, things that offer at least the opportunity of not continually becoming ever more deeply enmeshed in my ancient twisted karma. And I also have come to think of the relationships to the to the um, three refuges, and particularly with regard to uh, taking refuge in Sangha. And uh, they kind of, you know, most, many of the 
grave precepts are inherently social. They talk about how we relate to each other. And so they particularly illuminate that refuge. And then the second point um, is that, you know, you talked about the the different um, sort of approach to Jukai in sort of more traditional Japanese way and, and what's happening in here. And you, you alluded to the, the sort of Confucian um, underpinnings of, um, I guess we could say, ethical life in, in, in uh, more traditional societies. <clears throat> For better or worse, in a place like Japan, with the sort of underlying very strong Confucian ethic, um, relationships between people... Um, and how they interact with each other are somewhat more defined than in a place like the United States. Yes. And in the United States, they're, they're much more negotiable, much more processual, processual, however that word would, is said. And, um, uh, and that, I think, in itself... Um, when we bring uh, consideration of the precepts into these very, very, you know, to, to our nations or, or our world's ancient twisted karma, um, um, you know, there's a liberatory potential there. There's a flexibility that if we're skillful, we can actually um, perhaps affect um, some improvement in the way not not just um, that we relate to sangha in the sense of like a group like ours, but also um, in our in our relationship to the broader sanghas, however broadly we want to take that. And I you know I recommend it, taking it as far as you can, but um, you know I just think there's there's a real there's a real liberatory potential there if we if we take it seriously. Thank you. Yes. Fushin. Thank you, Tigan. My offering is to suggest that the precepts and accepting the precepts is a way of honoring our original teacher, our original nature, and that this this teaching, it has a lineage. So the initiatory aspect that Tigan was emphasizing has to do with um, learning how to express that which we are being taught in this whole process. So, um, you know, I mean, literally, we all have teachers. And when we encounter a teacher in a particular tradition, uh, and th- <laughs> we find gratitude, enormous gratitude for this teaching, then we express that gratitude by following in that tradition, uh, receiving that tradition as a gift, and then offering it in turn, perhaps in somewhat of a transformed way. But um, that's how I understand being in a lineage uh, in this particular tradition of Buddhism. So I hope that's helpful. Thank you. 
Yeah, thank you. Uh, part of this is when we uh, is wanting to share um, uh, in something that has has value for us, and there's lots of ways to do that. And again, uh, I, I want to say that you do not need to do this ceremony to do that. But how do you express? Um, the settledness, the clarity, calm, the insight that starts to develop as you do this practice regularly. And how do you, how do you express that in a way that is helpful to others? That's a, a, a big part of what um, our practice is about. So it's not just a self-help practice. Of course, we do benefit from doing this practice ourselves, but we're not just ourselves. We're connected with, you know, as, as Nyosan was saying, with many sanghas, with many people, with many different communities. How do we, how is our expression of this awareness uh, supportive to, to, to people? That's, that's, you know, that's the question, or that's, you know, what Fushing was uh, speaking to. Uh, Eve has her hands up. Hi. Yeah. So I just was wondering and wanted you to talk a little bit more about um, when you were 20 and and you were going in Kyoto and Mara. Um, so what was it? Can you say more about the the what you saw and what moved you? Sure. Um... Yeah, I didn't. Ha- I I I be there because um, parents were living in Tokyo. My father was on sabbatical there. I had dropped out of school for one of a number of times, and uh, uh, anyway, I uh, was able to go go there. And I just had I just went to Kyoto without any particular plan. I just I just went there and uh, started going around to these temples, and just um, uh, it was many things, but. The, the Buddhist statuary, um, the guardian figures, the bodhisattvas, the Buddha figures, just really um, uh, very powerful for me. And of course, also the temple architecture that Paul is an expert in now. Um, beautiful temples, um, and the Zen gardens. I, it, it just, I, you know, I don't know how to what to say about it. I. Uh, it's not necessary that uh, Americans and students go and practice in Japan, but uh, I know some people from Ancient Dragon have gone, and I have uh, recommended particular places to go, just not as not to practice particularly, although that's possible if you want to go for a longer period, but uh, just to see these, these, it's like pilgrimage, to see places where people have been doing Bodhisattva practice for a long time, and there's something about the ground that um, there that uh, um, it's like sacred places, you know, um, that uh, has some power. Uh, so I ended up 20 years later going back to live in Kyoto for a couple of years or so because um, I just felt like for me I needed to do that. Um, Again, it's not that everybody needs to do that. You can 
practice in Chicago, you can practice in California, you can practice in many places in the United States. Dogen says, why go, why go wander around aimlessly to the dusty realms of other lands? You know, it's right here, right now. Uh, but uh, for people who, you know, so uh, it's not about, you know, the, some of those temples are now uh, famous tourist sites. And some of the ones that are famous as tourist sites are, you know, not so impressive to me in terms of, from the point of view of a practitioner, although they're, you know, they have some, there's something lovely about them. But uh, there were places that are not famous tourist sites that were very powerful to me. Some of the famous tourist sites, Ryoanji in Kyoto, for example, the famous, most famous rock garden, there are many of them, is a place where you go and there are hordes of Japanese tourists wandering through and you have to get there early or just wait till there's a break to, uh, in the, um, uh, in all the people wandering through to actually appreciate what's there. Um, at any rate, uh, it just had this powerful effect on me. Um, and yet I did not, I, I didn't know what to do with it. <laughs> I, I didn't know that there was some way that I could be part of that. Uh, or, you know, that, that, that there was some way that I could practice with that. So I just came back to the States and went back to school. And it was four years later that I met my first teacher. Um, there's a, a fellow who, uh, uh, Tom Kirchner, who's a really good fellow, who's a Rinzai Zen monk and, uh, and translator now, who was, is my age and went there the same time. And uh, I... Somehow he figured out that he could go into the, the Soto and Kaninji and just be, stay there and became a Rinzai monk. So anyway, various karma. <laughs> uh, but anyway, it was, it was uh, uh, I think it was this, the Buddhist statues that, that affected me. It impacted me most uh, initially. There's a guy named Unkei, U-N-K-E-I. Probably none of you have heard of him. Maybe Paul has heard of him. But... Uh, He's all Japanese people think of him as the Japanese Michelangelo, and he really is. Uh, he was a, 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 a Buddhist uh, a sculptor of, sta- of uh, uh, Buddha and Bodhisattva and guardian statues, and his his sculpture is fantastic. It's just um, you know he's great, uh, and actually he comes from a lineage of of uh, Buddhist sculptors and his he had several sons who were um, they were associated with the temples and he his some of his sons also did amazing Buddhist statues so anyway but, but some little... of the statues so they're not just of Gautama Buddha there are other Bodhisattvas oh no no Bodhisattvas and fierce guardian figures and there's a whole range of esoteric so-called uh, Buddha figures that are part of Japanese Buddhism and just amazing statuary. So uh, Google Unkei and look at some of his... So what do we Google? U-N-K-E-I, Unkei. U-N-K-E-I, okay. Yeah. Thank you. Um, Mike Gillis, you have your hand up? Yeah, thank you for the talk. It was, it was really enlightening. I hadn't really heard much about the precepts, so I was... It was really nice to hear that. Um, something Nyozan said about the capacity of um, Western culture to bend and how that could be liberatory really resonated with me. Um, and I was curious, um, 
if you could expand on that a little, the, the thing I was thinking about in particular was kind of the tightrope that you walk with any philosophical or religious precepts between dogmatism and not really caring about them at all. Um, and I, I think coming from a Western secular perspective, I, I have much more of a tendency to kind of um, wave my hands away at, at, at precepts um, or, or any kind of tenets. Um, and I, I'm more likely to kind of ex- explain them away and think, well, in this particular situation, they don't really apply or, or I, I have an explanation for how they, they would apply. And, and so I'm just, I'm curious kind of how, how you personally um, ex- ex- experience using a precept in a particular situation and and wh- how you can kind of sort through whether you're being dogmatic, which I think to me might feel more like a, a karmic impulse, like it's history being passed down and you're not really being non-reactive or, or experiencing the current moment. Or on the other hand, um, you know, just kind of waving it away and not even taking the spirit of the precept in, into account in the moment. Thank you. That's a really important, uh, very helpful question. I think, well, you know, there's a range, you know, the people here and the people at Ancient Dragon have a range of backgrounds about quote-unquote religion, you know. Uh, there are people who are good Zen students who, are, who remain Christian or Jewish or whatever else, you know, that's, that's possible. Um, there are many people who come to, and particularly in the early days, I think people who came to... Uh, to Zen in America who were reacting against traditional Western religion uh, and, and exactly what you're talking about, that kind of dogmatism, fundamentalism. So I think that's a danger of religion. And again, religion means something different in Western religion and Japanese and in Eastern religion generally. So it's a complicated question actually, but uh, being literalist or fundamentalist about any religious tenets is a kind of, I think a kind of problem can be a problem being dogmatic about it and certainly trying to convert people. Uh, You know, you have to, you have to believe this way. You have to believe that way. Um, So uh, again, these, these precepts are not uh, thou shalt not thou shalt. They're not dogmas. They are, uh, questions. They're suggestions. They're uh, things that one m- uh, might uh, consider in terms of everyday activity. So not to hold on to them too tightly, but to really use them as a, as a way of looking at your life. So um, that's a short answer. I could go on, but uh, maybe that's, maybe that's enough. Uh, but I appreciate you raising that. Paul, Disco, uh, has his hand up, please. Thank you. Um, I think you have hit on the crux of our Zen practice. Dogen says flowers die with our attachment and weeds grow with our neglect. If you, if you, it's, it's, it's how to find the path between those two. 
either either overattachment to 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 an exacting principle or or a libertine neglect of, of all principles. There's a there's a path in between there, and how to find that is is what our Zen practice is about. And it's a once you find that path, then you can scroll freely without having to worry about falling off into either one. But it's very difficult. It's it's not it's not difficult. It just takes a lot of practice to find that path, and. Uh, that is that is why that is why we sit zazen. So that's that is the important. You ask the important question. How one one is one is too tight and one is too loose, and what should we actually do? Thank you for that, Paul. Yes, very good. Uh, maybe one more question, Jokai. Hi. Good morning. Um, I wanted to ask about the precept of not praising oneself and blaming others. Um, the way I've worked on it is, uh, I think, not placing oneself above others. And so I was wondering if you could help me understand how that would come up in our daily practice. Yeah, um, not uh, praising oneself at the expense of others. Uh, I think that goes back to something that Dogen says in Genjo Koan, to carry yourself forward and experience all the myriad things is delusion. That everything comes up together is awakening. Everything coming up together includes yourself. But if you're seeing everything in terms of your self-ideas, um, that's what's called delusion. Now, it's not, Dogen goes on to say that it's, it's, uh, there's delusion and there's awakening. It's not about getting rid of delusion. Uh, so naturally, I mean, I think maybe most of us, uh, when, when we're trained as adolescents to have an ego, <laughs> we do carry ourselves forward. But uh, liberation, as Paul was talking about, is about getting over it, <laughs> you know, not uh, seeing everything in terms of our ideas and our needs and, our, you know, me, 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 my, me, me, mine, whatever. There's a John Lennon song about that. Anyway, uh, so we have to study that. We have to study the self and we have to study how we uh, carry ourselves forward. And it's subtle. And it's not that you, you know, there's dropping away body-mind and there's letting go of aspects of self maybe. But in some ways it's an endless process to see how we are caught by our own ideas of things and our own processes and and it's again it's very subtle so um, this you know Dogen talks about Buddha going beyond Buddha it's not that you reach some magical state and then everything's perfect and you've got all the precepts and you know wahoo you know it's it's this is an endless process of paying attention to the situation of yourself and the world but there's but there's this reminder uh, not to uh, put yourself forward in front of everything else. That to realize that reality is that we're all in it together. That everything, all people, all beings, the trees and the mountains and the plains and the lakes, uh, and uh, you know, all the different kinds of sangha are all 
we're all part of this together. And, and then, and then our practice is how do we take care of that? You know, how do we support that? How are we, how can we each in our own way from our own place, be helpful to that? And, and this is a, this is a difficult practice. And so Buddha going beyond Buddha means that we, uh, we realize something, but then we have to keep going. It's an endless process. So thank you for that question. So we're going to, um, there's a bunch of announcements and things coming in January. And so uh, I'm looking forward so much to the, to this next year and all the things, all the adventures we will have together. Uh, but um, first we will do uh, a, some uh, chanting um, and a well-being dedication for Sojin Roshi and, and for some other beings. So, uh, David, will you start with the uh, repentance first, please? I will. I will. I'm about to share my screen. Um, I'm going to make sure that for everybody is muted. And um, I'll share the screen. We'll do the repentance verse uh, three times, and then I will introduce... Um, uh, a, a Kanzeon chant, which um, um, which Taigen will lead, um, and then I'll then I'll chant the Metta Sutta, and then after that we will have the uh, well-being dedication. So, beginning with the repentance verse three times. All my ancient twisted karma, from beginningless greed, hate, and delusion. Born through body, speech, and mind, I now fully avow all my ancient twisted karma from beginningless greed, hate, and delusion. Born through body, speech, and mind, I now fully avow all my ancient twisted karma from beginningless greed, hate, and delusion, born through body, speech, and mind, I now fully avow. And may Juku Kanon Gyo Nam, but to your in your 
en bu posoen, jorak gajo, jonen kanzeo, bonen kanzeo, nennen jushinki, nennen furishin, kanzeo, namu butsuyo, butsuen yo, butsuen bu posoen, jorak gajo, jonen kanzeo, Bonen kanzeon, nennen jushinki, nennen furi shin kanzeon, namu butsuyo, butsuen yo, butsuen bupo, soen jorakuga, jochonen kanzeon, bonen kanzeon. Nennen jishinki, nennen furishin, kanzeon namo, butsu yo butsu en, yo butsu en, pupo so en, choraku ga jo, chonen kanze, on bonen kans, yon nennen jishinki, nennen furishin, kanzeon namo, Butsu yo butsu en, yo butsu en, upo so en, choraku ga jo, chonen kanze on, bonen kanze on, nennen jushin ki, nennen furishin. Meta Sutta. This is what should be accomplished by the one who is wise, who seeks the good, has obtained peace. Let one be bright and sincere, without pride, easily contented and joyous. Let one not be by the things of world. Let one not take upon oneself the burden of riches. Let one's senses be controlled. Let one be wise but not puffed up. And let one not desire great possessions even for one's family. Let one do nothing that is mean or that the wise would reprove. May all beings be happy. They be joyous and live in safety. All living beings, whether weak or strong, in high or middle or low realms of existence, small or great, visible or invisible, near or far, born or to be born, may all beings be happy. Let no one deceive another, nor despise any being in any state. Let none by anger or hatred wish harm to another. Even as a mother at the risk of her life watches over and protects her only child, so with a boundless mind should one cherish all living things, suffusing love over the entire world, above, below, and all around without limit. So let one cultivate an infinite goodwill toward the whole world, standing or walking, sitting or lying down, during all one's waking hours, let one practice the way with gratitude, not holding to fixed views, endowed with insight, freed from sense appetites. One who achieves the way will be freed from the duality of birth and death.
May all awakened beings extend with true compassion their luminous mirror wisdom. With full awareness we have chanted, and Mejuku Kanon Gyo and the Meta Sutta, we dedicate this merit to our original ancestor in India, great teacher Shakyamuni Buddha, our first woman ancestor, great teacher Mahaprajapati, Ancestor in China, great teacher Bodhidharma, our first ancestor in Japan, great teacher Ehe Dogen, our first ancestor in America, great teacher Shogaku Shunryu, the perfect wisdom Bodhisattva Manjushri, and to the fulfillment of practice of all members of all Sanghas. Gratefully, we offer this virtue to all beings, all Buddhas throughout space and time, all honored ones, bodhisattvas, mahasattvas, wisdom beyond wisdom maha prajna paramita